Hey there, I'm Amadali Akbar, and this is See Something, Say Something, the BuzzFeed podcast where we drink tea, tell stories, and talk about being Muslim in America. This week, we'll be talking to some authors about writing books for the young folk. <laughs> if you see something, you better, you better say something. Nothing at all, nothing at all. So this week, our guests are Hina Khan. She's a children's book and young adult author. Um, she's the author of It's Ramadan, Curious George, where Curious George celebrates Ramadan and learns about it from one of his friends. And the man in the yellow hat gets a yellow fez as an Eid present. It's amazing. And she's also the author of Amna's Voice, which is a novel coming out next year. Hi, Hina. Hi. Thanks for having me on your show. That's good to have you. And we have Sarah Ferzan, whose young adult novels, If You Could Be Mine and Tell Me Again How a Crush Should Feel, are queer coming-of-age stories set in Iran and America. Hi, Sarah. Welcome. Hi. It's great to be here. <laughs> so excited. We're so excited to have you. <laughs> First, I'm going to ask Hina and Sarah to read a short excerpts from their writing. Then we're going to do See Something, Say Something and play a quick round of Halal or Not. And then finally, we'll talk about their books. They'll give me some writing advice. And of course, as always, we'll talk about representation. Also, off-air, I asked them to suggest some books for young readers, which I wrote up into a post. Uh, you can find that on our See Something, Say Something page on BuzzFeed, buzzfeed.com slash see something, say something. Sound good, guys? Sounds great. Yeah. I'm down. So before you guys came into the studio, I asked you guys to record a little bit of yourself uh, reading from your writing so the listeners could get a little bit of a sense of your writing. Um, Hina is going to be reading from Amina's Voice, which is her upcoming book about a sixth grade Pakistani American. Um, and in the scene you're going to read, there's just been a vandalism at their local Islamic center. Uh, Amina's family is, is sitting around the TV. So they've just finished watching the news report about the vandalism and arson at the mosque. And um, the family is talking about what they think about the events. And it's all from the perspective of Amna, who is like a young Pakistani American, like listening in on her parents' conversation. Mustafa turns off the TV and everyone sits quietly with grim expressions on their faces. The police have been taking this seriously. Thaijan breaks the silence. I'm surprised to hear his voice, even though his face shows that he's been very troubled by everything that's happened. He hasn't said much about it. Muslims have far more friends than enemies in this country. Some people don't understand Islam or are misled and fear us. But I'm getting so many calls of support from our friends and neighbors in the community, Imam Malik says. It's true, Hamid Uncle adds. Even with things like this, I'm still convinced there's no better place to be a Muslim in the world than in this country. I think about what Baba said about Daya John wishing our family had gone back to Pakistan and worrying that his brother wouldn't like our lives in America. But Thaijan surprisingly nods in agreement. There are many good things about life here in America that are very good, Thaijan says. And I'm starting to think you may be right. I shift on the bench, and my elbow strikes one of the piano keys. The sound startles everyone, who are already jumpy on edge. Why don't you play us something, Gita, Baba suggests. It might help. When I look at him with surprise, he gives me a sly look. I hesitate and glance at Thaijan to see his reaction. He doesn't say anything and only smiles slightly. 
Did Bob already talk to him about music like he said he would? Go on, Mama pushes. It'll be good for us to take our minds off everything. I spin around to face the piano, glad to be doing something other than just sitting, listening, and worrying. As I run my fingers over the smooth keys, a warm, comforting feeling settles over my shoulders and moves down my arms. I flip through the songs I've been practicing in my lesson book and decide on Beethoven's Sonata No. 8. I take a deep breath and start to play, letting my emotions pour out through my fingertips. After the first few measures, I forget everything for a moment and feel whole again, in spite of what happened earlier in the day. I play as if no one is listening, basking in the richness of the sound. Finally, as I hit the last note, I remember that I'm not alone and turn around. Baby Samaya squeals and bangs her toy on the coffee table, drooling with a big toothless grin. But everyone else has tears in their eyes, even Thiajan. So that was a sneak peek because that book is not out yet. So thank you for sharing that with us. I can't wait to read it next year. Sarah, I also want the readers to hear from your writing. Um, I asked you to read a section of your young adult novel, Tell Me Again How a Crush Should Feel. This is also written from the perspective of a um, young woman who I think she's in high school. Um, She's an Iranian American. Her name is Layla. And she... um, talks a lot about before this about how she likes girls but she's basically closeted nobody else knows um and she is sitting in class and this new very beautiful very elegant and mature new student is being introduced to class on thursdays we have class assembly first thing tessa's dad mr carr runs the show for the junior class along with miss taylor and they make announcements while everyone ignores them busily finishing homework or memorizing notes scribbled on index cards for a quiz later on. Today, though, no one is doing anything but looking at the front of the room. Mr. Carr is introducing a new student, and this girl will have our attention for as long as she wants it. It's clear the class has never seen anything like her before. I've never seen anything like her before. She's wearing a black turtleneck, jeans, which are against dress code, and black heels. She looks like she just walked out of a Garnier Fructis shampoo commercial. She is stunning. Her honey-tinted skin and long, dark hair have Robert Peters and others in his group nudging one another, and Ashley Martin sizing her up, taking note of her latest threat. Okay, class, we have a new student. Her name is Saskia Lansing, and she has just moved here from Switzerland. Saskia, would you care to introduce yourself? Ugh, I hate when Dad does this, Tess whispers in my ear. It's always so embarrassing, putting someone on the spot. I just wait for Saskia's voice. Hello, everyone. I'm very pleased to meet all of you. I've heard a lot of excellent things about your curriculum. Please take pity on me and invite me to lunch for a chat. I'm interesting and charming, I promise. Saskia smiles and seems so comfortable in her own skin. She looks and acts like she's in her 20s, poised but not rigid, refined but not stuck up. The announcements keep coming out of Mr. Carr's mouth, and I can feel Tess squirming, unable to deal with whatever her dad is saying. I can't keep my eyes off Saskia. I'm pretty sure she'll end up dating Robert and start wearing short pink skirts and Ralph Lauren polo shirts. Then they'll go to prom together, get married, have babies, and oh my god, she's looking at me. Crap! What do I do? 
Do I avert my eyes? No, it's too late for that. Okay, uh, uh, smile, but not too eager. Just a subtle, oh my god, she's smiling back. I look around, thinking maybe she's smiling at someone behind me. I turn back to her, and she smiles again, this time more widely at my confusion. Thank you for reading that, Sarah. That it definitely basically perfectly describes what a crush feels like. <laughs> Every week on uh, See Something, Say Something, we do a segment called See Something, Say Something where we check in with people. So, Hina, what are you thinking about this week? Oh, well, so the non-serious crazy stuff I'm thinking about is revolving around squirrels and (laughs) marshmallows. Um, Squirrels because I have a family in my attic that won't leave us alone. And it's been this ongoing war to try to get them out of our house and they keep coming back. And I think they are mating at present. And oh, no. <laughs> it's really, really loud. Um, oh, no. Well, not wow. only because of the mating. Um, at first, I was like, I think they're fighting. And someone said, no, I don't think that's what they're doing. Oh, um, Just trying to get a nut. What's up? Yeah. <laughs> trying to get a nut. It's literally sounds like a construction crew uh, over your head at 6 o'clock in the morning. There's like hammering and sawing and all sorts of things happening as they're constructing their nest or whatever it is they're doing. They have an itch they need to scratch, I guess. I actually had to call (laughs) an exterminator today because our little makeshift solutions are not working. They're just trying to live. Yeah, I know. I feel bad for them. And that's why we wanted to be humane and not, you know, trap them or do anything. We just keep trying to block their entry and... But um, your trunk blocking. That's yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, squirrels have been on my mind, and actually going into the halal or not game, I'm actually been trying to make halal marshmallows. So Ooh, that's been um, the light and fluffy Do you part mean of from my scratch? life. Scratch? Yeah, yeah. I don't even actually, know how you make marshmallows. It's actually not that hard. You make a syrup and you pour it into the gelatin mixture. And I was able to get some halal gelatin when I was in Dubai, and uh, I have a supply coming with my brother from Doha, and I'm so excited. So I figure for those who don't like to eat non-halal marshmallows, they can enjoy these delicious homemade pillows of goodness. I wish you could send some to me. I will. I will. I promise. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. They're that good. I want you to try them. Amazing. Um, Sara, what are you thinking about this week? Well, I've been thinking a lot about The Twilight Zone. Um, something I've always wanted to get into. It was a show I really enjoyed as a kid. Um, It's on, I think it's on Netflix now. But when I was a kid, I used to watch like just every episode. Usually it was on Nick at Night. Then as I got older, I would read like episodes, transcripts from the library. Just because they're basically like short story kind Mm. of. And there are two episodes I've been thinking about post-election. One is The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. It's a nice idyllic 1950s, you know, neighborhood. And then all of a sudden the electricity goes out and then goes on again. And um, there's a kid who's reading a comic book who's like, oh, it's probably the aliens. And all the neighbors kind of end up in this shouting match of like, who's the alien among them, which is a ridiculous Hmm. premise. But then it becomes this like really scary, violent kind of thing. And then the other other episode I've been thinking about is um, I think it's called It's a Good Life, where there's this like six-year-old boy who has, like, telepathic powers. Like, he can read everyone's thoughts. So if he's displeased, he'll, like, send you to the cornfield or, like, turn you into a squirrel, let's say. (laughs) Yeah, I think I know that episode. 
Yeah, so everyone's like super nice around him. Because they're so terrified of his Because they're terrified. So yeah. they're like, oh, it's a good thing that you did that, Andy. It's a real good thing. <laughs> We're going to be fine. So I've been thinking of those two episodes <laughs> a lot. Are they metaphors for the election? Is that what you're feeling like? Yeah, just kind of like, a, like you know, the fear has left my body. And I think that's like a defense mechanism. And also it's kind of like, a you know, America keeps on running. Hmm. But I think it's also this kind of like, we don't know what's next, but it's a good thing. It's a good thing he, he's <laughs> doing what he's doing. So you're just kind of like, okay. But I've been thinking of those episodes and kind of how when there is fear involved, like what kind of reactions people go through. Yeah, I hear references to Twilight Zone oh, yeah. and pop culture all the time, mm-hmm. like in commercials or in like Futurama. I feel like they reference it pretty often. Mm-hmm. It's like one of those things that's woven into our cultural fabric. So basically, Halal or Not is a segment where we I give you a concept, word, a phrase, a character, and you basically say whether it's halal or not, meaning like thumbs up or thumbs down, <laughs> you know, like just your personal opinion, like you're no sheikh. We're going to start with Hina, Babur the Elephant, like from the children's books. Oh, gosh, that's a throwback. It is a throwback. Um, I don't remember or anything Baybar, about Babar, I guess they called him. Baybar, I'm saying Babar. Yeah, because... Babar. We'll, we'll make him Pakistani. I'm saying, I'm saying it in the most Desi way possible. Um, <laughs> Babar. I, I, I would say halal because I don't remember anything else about him other than I never really understood why those books were so popular. I didn't get into them as a kid. And I, I didn't actually read them to my kids either, so I don't. That's probably why I don't remember them very well. But I did like the art, so I say halal. Another reason why I <laughs> asked you is because I was very much into them as a kid, and I remember nothing. And as far as I <laughs> like, I read that maybe they're sort of like a French colonialist story, and like maybe there's some layers to it that I didn't understand as a kid that I wouldn't like now. So I was hoping as a children's book author, you'd know and you could tell me whether... I'm sorry to disappoint. I That's don't okay. Know. There's a lot of books but out there. But there are lots of books where they're, they're... Even Curious George, you know, I, somebody wanted to interview me for a show that talked about the colonialism aspect of Curious mm. George and, and the racial undertones and things like that. And I was like, um, I don't think the publisher would want me to talk about that. I'm so, you know, I, I was hired to write for the series, so... <laughs> Um, I politely decline, but yeah, there are like entire dissertations. Yeah, written. They're asking you to tear down Curious George from the inside. But yeah, definitely, I think people have strong opinions about these issues. Yeah, well, we'll have to all read some. uh, I'm going to say Babar again because (laughs) I like that. Isn't it Babar? Yeah, I've heard Babar and Babar. I think nobody ever knew how to say it. Uh, Sara, folding the corner of a book to keep your place. It's a very tense issue. I've always been a fan. Of doing that. Me too. Um, but I just, you know, fold it over. It's no big. Fold oh, it back. Not me. Um, I know. <laughs> I know already. It's... Yeah, I'm on that team as well. I think mm. you should use the hell out of your books because, you know, they're for reading, you know? It gives them character. It does you know? give them character. It's like, oh, someone read this. Look at that. Look at that coffee stain and that smudged <laughs> peanut butter. I love getting a library book and then coming across a stain and being like, I don't know what that is. I have no idea what that is. <laughs> and I imagine the person who read it before, like, what what were they up to? And I do love a, a well-worn library book, too, and especially when they have little notes that they leave inside. Yeah, um, that's great. Um, Hannah, the, the mouse from If You Give a Mouse a Cookie. Oh, super halal. 
I love that mouse. But he'll eat you out of house and home. He yeah. is. You were trying to get rid of the squirrels, though, and you're saying yeah. this is not consistent. Yeah. I love that mouse, the cartoon mouse, but I am deathly afraid of actual mice. Um, Sarah Holden Caulfield from Catcher in the Rye. Oh. <laughs> am I giving you terrible ones? <laughs> no, I I liked him when I was 13. Yeah, same. I think I I'd still lie. sort of be down with him now. He'd probably call me a phony. Yeah. We would all um, definitely I'd, be. I'd be comfortable with that. Um, <laughs> and I loved that book in middle school. I still like that book. But at the time, I was like, whoa, this is deep. You know, this is great stuff. Yeah, everybody's a phony. Yeah, I, I think I think he's halal if you don't date him. <laughs> <laughs> Which I wouldn't because he's a man. But um, gay. Um, so, yeah. So he's fine, I guess, for the most part. I grew up in a reading household. My mother was a huge reader. She was an immigrant as well. So I was always like fascinated by her reading English books in Pakistan. And I'd be like, I'm reading 1984 in ninth grade. And she'd be like, oh, I read that when I was nine years old. You American <laughs> kids don't read enough, you know? So I had this like insecure complex that I needed to read serious books like my mom, who was reading 1984 and like War and Peace when she's like 10 or 11. But she also, like, she wanted me to read the classics, but I found them to be, like, overly white, and I didn't feel represented in them. So, like, I had this thing where I kind of responded to that by reading very, um, like, sort of overly serious books. I was trying to impress my mom, <laughs> so I never, I never wanted— <laughs> So you weren't really reading for pleasure. It was more, like, look what I can do, Mom. Exactly, yes. Okay. It was very much like that immigrant parent— you know, trying to please them. Oh, I just tried to get better at science. Didn't didn't pan out. See, I also sure. did that. I just knew it wasn't going to pan out, <laughs> and I just didn't mm-hmm. care. I cared more that she respected what I read. That's all to say, I want to know about you guys. What were you like as readers growing up? What what kind of things did you read, and what are some of your stories about growing into the things you like to read? Okay, let's start with Sarah. I read a lot as a kid, but I also watched a lot of television and watched a lot of film. So I was very narrative story driven. And then to your point about reading the classics, like, you know, obviously there's a lot to learn from the books that are in curriculum, like, you know, Great Gatsby or Scarlet Letter or Jane Eyre, which are great books and not to take away from that. But a lot of them were old books, which is fine. While you could get a lot from The Scarlet Letter about, you know, slut-shaming, let's say, um, there wasn't really a whole lot in the book scene that was sort of speaking to issues that I think kids go through. Mm -hmm. Um, And there were those books, but they just weren't in curriculum. So then you, college, I just started trying to find things that I enjoyed personally and then thought about, like, books I kind of, or just even stories that I wish I had as a kid. And that's really informed the stuff that I write is just stuff that I wish I had when I was younger. How about you, Hannah? I was a really big reader, too. Um, My mom was a book pusher, and (laughs) she didn't believe in entertaining children or summer camp or anything like that. So we we would go to the library with shopping bags and fill them up and come home, and that was what we did all summer. And I had 
a small collection of books that I would just read and read over again. And my sister had some. And I didn't even always like what I read, but I just mm. read it because that's what I had around. Um, I always loved mostly female characters and their lives. And I don't think I was really aware that I didn't see myself in the books that I read. I mean, I obviously knew my family was different than the one I was reading about, but I, I don't think I ever felt acutely that I'm missing from all of these stories that I'm reading until I got older. That was actually my next question. You both seeded that beautifully. Is What was the first time or character or author where you saw felt like you saw yourself represented in literature? I don't know. There are lots of different characters that I'm always surprised by how they make you feel about them, especially when you're reading a book about someone that you on paper don't have a lot in common with. When I was in high school, I you know, was closeted and kind of looking for books to help me out that way. And I came across Annie on my mind in my town library, which was dated at that time, but it was, you know, one of the first kind of lesbian teen books. And I read it and just felt very like, oh, okay, so there's more material out there. And I didn't feel like I needed a manual, but I definitely needed books that kind of spoke to a certain experience. And like, how does this character go through it? But all the books that I found like that, the main characters were of European descent. Mm. So there wasn't really, like, how am I going to do that (laughs) when the time comes sort of thing. And then as far as, you know, books with Middle Eastern protagonists, I didn't really see any until I was in college. And then they were kind of geared towards the younger audience. The books by Randa Abdel-Fattah, who's an Australian author, and she had a book called um, Does My Head Look Big in This, which was the first book of hers that I saw on the shelf. But I didn't really read her stuff until grad school when I was studying young adult literature. Well, for me, um, but I don't think it was until, yeah, as also as a young adult that I started reading a lot of South Asian literature and trying to find myself in the books I was reading. Yeah. And I didn't really, until I would say Jhumpa Lahiri was the first person I really connected with. And I fell in love with her novel, Namesake, and um, and for the first time felt like those characters reflected me in a way that others hadn't. Um, even the way she describes the parents in that story. I think actually Namesake was one of them for me as well. The other one that comes to mind, which like I um, hated at the time, but I also was so fascinated by and I think did have an effect on me, um, was The Thakwa Course. <laughs> What's that? Yeah, I haven't heard of that either. It's by Michael Muhammad Knight, who's written a lot of books since then. That was his first, right, right, right. His first book. Um, so he finds this posting for um, like a house of Muslims, and he moves in, and his parents think it's like a bunch of Muslims that are like gonna keep him on the straight and narrow. But it's like this house of like a bunch of like crusty, totally disgusting punks um, that are also Muslim, and they're like able to talk about the Quran, but they also like. You know, they're very frank in a way that makes the main character uncomfortable about, like, drugs and sex and, you know, the fact that, like, maybe there's things in the Quran to be questioned. And I had my problems with it. Like, I didn't like the way any of the women characters were written. Um, But there was, like, this thing about it that was kind of fascinating for me where, like, the central thesis was sort of nobody can define what being a Muslim means except for you. And that was, like, really powerful for me as somebody who's trying to find, I don't know, meaning in this, like, being an immigrant kid in the post 9-11 era and trying to figure out like what the community meant to me, you know, having issues with the Muslim community. It helped me understand that 
there's a broader vision for being Muslim out there, even if I didn't agree with like the specifics of the narrative when it bothered me, that argument really was like very influential on me. Guys, I I got to tell you something also, which I don't really tell anyone, but I'm going to just say this on the show, okay. is that I kind of also want to write fiction, <laughs> but <laughs> I never, I only just like doodle in my own, like a word doc that I've been just tinkering with well, for like okay. six years. You got to start somewhere. I, you got to start somewhere. Like the only writing I've ever published that's not for like BuzzFeed lists, I guess, and news <laughs> are like um, personal essays, which are memoir-ish. Yeah. And I just want to write about myself. Well, there you go. I don't know. It's like a complicated feeling for me about like writing about yourself that like on one hand, I'm interested in writing about like a broader Muslim community, um, but it's like how do you represent all the different voices? And maybe the best way is through writing a character like yourself. How do you develop characters? Do you guys write characters that are like yourself? Do you start that way or... What what is it? I, I like I need advice, guys. You guys have to help me. <laughs> yeah, I think like I don't know, fear and self doubt kind of hold people back from writing in general, but especially if it's nonfiction, because you're like, oh, I gotta check in with my mom about that. I gotta make sure she's cool with that yeah. page. Mm-hmm. I found fiction to be the route for me to go, and that you know, there's a cloak of like it's made up people. And it's made up stuff, but the feelings are are pretty real. Mm. And I found with at least young adult writing and teen writing that the voice is really important. So my two books are, you know, first person narration. So you're in that person's head. And so those two sound very much like me. (laughs) (laughs) But I have this book with my publisher that is still going through edits and but the main character is a male, is a cisgendered heterosexual male. And I gave it to a friend to be like, what do you think? And like, is it believable that, you know, it's a dude? And um, she was like, yeah, it just sounds like Sarah's a boy. So that's, (laughs) you know, I was like, well, we both like chicks in basketball. So hopefully that's (laughs) believable. (laughs) (laughs) What makes me write is wanting to feel better. I mean, that's really all it is, you know? Totally. So those two books were really grad school projects and we're in a grad school bubble. And I really didn't think they would go anywhere. I think it's if you just write because you, you're compelled to and you want to um, not just reach someone, but just kind of reach into parts that you had not talked about for a long time. I think that's the best kind of, yeah. you know, therapy. And it's free. No copay. <laughs> Writing helps me process my feelings. Um, and in many ways, obviously, it's easier to do it in like a direct memoir way. But I think actually also fiction is good. I want to write both, I guess. But I just like... I struggle to put it all together. <laughs> I have, like, mm. all these bits. That's what an editor's for. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I had to rewrite Amo's voice three times. And yeah. I had it written initially in the third-person narrative, and then I realized I wasn't getting the voice right. Like you mentioned, Sarah, there was something missing. And I would go back and forth between sounding like a sixth grader and then sounding like myself. Like, I would sneak mm-hmm. in, and they'd be like, oh, there's the adult sneaking in and talking about decorating yeah. or something random that a kid wouldn't care about. <laughs> And when I went back and and rewrote it in the first person, I could cut out a lot of the details that didn't matter. But to answer your question about whether she's me or not, you know, I feel like there's definitely 
for me as a writer, autobiographical elements in, in all my stories. And if it's mm. not my life, it's someone else's life that I'm stealing from, like a friend or somebody else, a family member. So there's definitely, she's. I think she's a composite of so many people that I know or experiences that I've heard of. So I knew you were working on Amna's voice, but I don't know much about the character. Can you tell me what's Amna like? Everybody wants like a go-getter girl or like some sort of Katniss <laughs> who's like going <laughs> to save the world. And, and she's not that. I think like me, she was like a, a shy, inhibited child. But in her case, she's got talents that I didn't have that she's afraid to let shine. But the idea that, you know, not every girl is outspoken or daring or brave and and she represents a lot of the little girls I know who don't necessarily want the spotlight and so I think just getting to know her and really a family that represents a lot of the families I know um, and to be able to put that in into the world and and have others especially nowadays get to know a family like her as a Pakistani American moderate practicing Muslim family uh, and address some of the issues that people are confused about, like being part of a mosque community, what actually happens there, and mm-hmm. what is prayer, what is the significance of the Quran in a family. I'm able to weave that in, hopefully in a way that's not you know, overly instructive, but just part of the story as you get to know this little girl. So I'm hoping she'll go out and do some good things in the world and <laughs> spread, some, spread some love and tolerance. Yeah, that's coming out in March, yeah? Yes. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> and I think kids, they make more sense than grown-ups a lot of the time because they <laughs> ask questions, like, all the time. And then when you get older, you don't ask the questions anymore. I mean, maybe existentially, like, what's the point of life? And <laughs> how am I going to pay this rent and you know, that kind of thing? But right. um, they, they, kids ask questions in a way that grown-ups don't anymore. You mean as readers? I just think in general. Like, yeah, even as characters. Yeah. 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 You know, it's just her her reaction to this situation and seeing it through her lens and, and the innocence of a child who doesn't necessarily understand the bigger political implications or what's happening. And at one point, she she's actually been praying that she doesn't have to recite the Quran in this competition that her parents are pushing her to, to be in. And mm. the next thing she realizes that that's the mosque very is relatable for me, by the yeah. way. Yeah, <laughs> and so the mosque gets vandalized, and it's it's horrible. She's there, and she's surveying this this damage, and she's, you know, completely gutted and and horrified by what she's seeing. And as she's walking out with her her big brother, she all of a sudden stops him and, and says, "I was praying, you know, f- for the competition not to happen." And all of a sudden, mm. when she realizes that it can't happen now, she has this, you know, feeling, and he's like. A typical big brother, like you idiot, like that's not how it works. You know, you didn't, you didn't do this because she has this moment of panic that you know all the praying that she did for it not to happen. You know, look what happened, and that's a very you know childish way of seeing something is obviously much bigger than than she realizes. Um, I actually wanted to ask you something, Sarah. Also, like the way you've written your books are, you talk about like all these things that. Uh, you know, like relationships, you know, crushing, coming out as queer, love, in this very frank and direct way. But I just thought it was, like, so interesting that you were able to really um, talk about it so directly. And that was something that, like, I struggled with um, mm-hmm. at home, talking about, you know, obviously, I, I mean, I'm a, a straight cisgendered man. But I, you know, even talking about just, like, a girl I liked with my parents was so hard. Mm-hmm. Um, so is that something you, you, you know, you've always had or something you like cultivated as you got older? Oh, no. Well, I've always been pretty honest and I use humor a lot to kind of bring people in or bring people into a conversation. It's just something I've always done since I was a kid, Yeah. you know, without hopefully coming across as like a clown. But 
I think people can glean a lot and gain a lot from a good, happy feeling. Mm. And when it's humor, that's not at anyone's expense. So I've always kind of used that. Yeah, in those books, there just wasn't any room to not be honest, given what the feeling was. Like, And again, in the writing to make myself feel better, that's what I was doing. And like, what do I want to communicate? And what do I want these characters to communicate? That's not to say I'm not awkward around women. I totally am. <laughs> and I think my mom is getting to the point where she's like, we want grandkids. Like, do I arrange marriage for you? Like, But she means like a woman. Like, like right. find like a Persian network of ladies you know, I'm like, that's going to be a real tough sell, Mom, because one, I'm not a doctor, and two, I don't want to do that, and that's weird. Um, but, you know, I think we've come a long way since, you know, I did come out. I'm okay with being who I am as long as it doesn't cause me bodily harm, hmm. you know, and I think that's so important for young people to see because I don't think there's, you know, when people describe the books as controversial, it's like, well, I don't think I'm controversial. I think I'm pretty boring. I watch Celtics games in my sweatpants <laughs> and, uh, you know. To me, it was just like I was impressed with how natural it was. You know, it was like oh, something that's like so hard for me. Yeah, I'm emotionally 16 because I didn't have that, you know, in high school when you do the whole like proms and dances and stuff and dates. Like I was organizing the dances like I was in student government and then would like hang out with the chaperones basically so I wouldn't have to like grind up on some dude, you know. <laughs> so I think I'm still catching up in terms of what's supposed to happen. <laughs> like I'm still trying to figure out like how to be okay in a romantic situation because it does make me uncomfortable still. And I don't know if that's how I grew up or if I just am that way. Of course, thank goodness I've had more years than my characters <laughs> I have perspective where I think they're very in the moment. You know, and like, this romance is it. This is the one. I enjoy coming-of-age stories, and I think I enjoy telling them. And hopefully I can do that more in the future. We're talking a lot from, obviously, your perspective as a writer. But I want to hear also about your readers. Like, who's reading your books? And what are some comments and feedback you've gotten writing these characters who are Pakistani and Muslim or queer and Iranian? What sort of reactions have you gotten? I would like to hear some some good in these very difficult times. Well, I was super nervous um, before touring for my first book, which was If You Could Be Mine, and that was in 2013. So I'm old news now. I'm, you know, <laughs> even though I'm still young in my career, I only have the two books and I have, you know, three short stories coming out and another book, wow. which hopefully will come out in 2018. And also, if there are only so few books about a certain group of people or topic, um, you want to make sure you do it well enough. And I don't know that I necessarily did. You know, I was coming from a place of, like, all heart. I didn't think about, well, there are only so few books about, you know, Persian people, or there are only so few books about gay people. You know, and my first book had trans characters, which if that was the only book you read about trans characters, it would be very problematic. Hmm because it's seen through the lens of a different culture. You know, I write to make myself feel better um, and mostly talk about my own identity, because I'm not religious. I grew up in a pretty secular household. Um, you know, I'm gay, but I, like, girls terrify me. So, like, it was, like, all these kind of things Same. that, you know, like, I have all these identities, but I don't necessarily feel like I match up all the way, like I'm not gay enough or I'm not Persian enough or I'm not American enough. 
And I think that comes through in my in my books. Um, what was interesting t- in touring is meeting the people who do read your stuff. So for yeah. me, it was like what I really enjoyed was that all the readers were so different from each other. Hmm. So they were different races, ages, uh, sexual orientations, gender identities. I went to Australia, which was amazing for the books. It was the first time where people were like, so what's it like, you know, being an American, basically? And like, do you know Kanye West? (laughs) What's he like? (laughs) So, um, and it's really, it's always emotional for me when in Australia, this, you know, Australian white lady came up and she was in her early 20s and was like, you know, your book helped me come out to my parents, which wow. is a big, I mean, I, I don't think it's the book. I think you know when you're ready to do that. But that she said that was like a very emotional thing. Right. And then you have people who, you know, was like, oh, I gave my book to my, you know, Middle Eastern friend who is dealing with this still and uh, gave it to her and she cried and loved it, but she's still not out to her family. And I was like, oh, well, you know, how old is she? Like thinking it's like a 16-year-old, you know? Right. You know, that's who the age range is, 14 and up, 13 and up. And she's like, no, she's in her 40s and she's still struggling. But, um, yeah, I still always worry about if I'm doing the right thing, I guess. Yeah, I feel the same way, especially with something like... I also feel similarly. Yeah, (laughs) and for me, writing books, you know, especially the Muslim-themed picture books, you know, something so simple, there's always somebody who has a negative reaction to something I've written. Mm -hmm. Um, and even something as simple as Night of the Moon, like, oh, the, the main character, the, the woman's not wearing hijab or, you know, something that they'll find. Or, or the Curious George Ramadan book, which... You're saying people complained that one of your characters was not wearing hijab? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. I heard that complaint. Um, and even Curious George, which got an enormous response, like, bigger than I ever imagined. You know, I had somebody say, oh, I, I really wish you had gone into more detail about why we fast or the meaning of Ramadan. And I said, you realize this is a board <laughs> book with a monkey in it who's, you know, hanging out with a Muslim family. There really wasn't room to talk about the significance of Ramadan. So I feel like that is something, you know, I, I think about in terms of even with the novel coming out, you know, the responsibility that comes with representing, you know, an entire group of people. And obviously we're not a monolith and you can't do that. But you know, the idea that somebody will always be offended or, you know, think you you haven't done it properly. I think about this all the time on the show is like um, there's going to be no perfect representation in, you know, any like creative endeavor. And mm-hmm. it's so difficult to think about how to represent it. Like right. the things you think about, I'm also thinking about with the podcast and the voices, mm-hmm. you know, we feature. Um, and in a way, what I want it to feel like, it doesn't have to be perfect. Right. But... I understand still, it still has to be really good and thoughtful, yeah. you know, and it mm-hmm. is very paralyzing. For me, in terms of when you asked who, who my main audience is or who I think about, it, I think of a school library, a school librarian, and I want books that a child like me could go into her public library and, and find a book that does reflect her experience. And then I want, you know, another child who is outside of the culture to be able to pick up that book and have a window into, you know, the Muslim tradition or whatever family or experience. So that that's really who I have in mind. And, you know, to what we were talking about earlier, I, I still grapple with that. And, I you know, I do think about who might potentially be offended or who might potentially disagree with my depiction. And, and like you said, it, there isn't just one. And I think that's what right. I keep telling myself, that, you know, the more voices we have out there, the better. And there'll be other voices. And there's other books out there. The ones I used to buy for my kids before books like mine existed, the ones that you get <laughs> at, at ISNA, you know, which are completely different type of book that teach kids how to be Muslim or, you know, how to pray or stories of the prophet. And I remember this one book called Dinner Time. 
which is about a family. I don't, I don't remember even what the point was other than they're having dinner. But everyone in the story was like, <laughs> It's you know, dinner time, kids. It's dinner time. Dinner time. You know, subhanAllah, we're going to have dinner. And oh, mashallah. What, you know, and it was like, you know, it was really, yeah, really. Family. Yeah, I was like, I, I've never met a family like that. And I know some observant Muslims and I, I still don't think they behave like the characters in that book. Um, so, you know, I think obviously we have a, a wide range and. You know, I'm trying to tell myself it's okay <laughs> to have my my voice out there representing people like me. Yeah, I think it's also difficult to, like, combat this sort of willful ignorance that people, like, just don't care a lot of the time. Like, I don't know, when people are like, oh, Africa, right? And they don't think about, like, all the different countries in Africa or the different cultures or language. I feel like that's kind of becoming well, a lot of the Middle East or South Asian narratives where it's like, oh, right, those guys. And it's like, no, we have different cultures and different, mm-hmm. you know, languages and different traditions. And so I think the more kind of um, in that sort of tapestry of identity, I think that'll kind of hopefully make people be like, oh, I'm learning something about different people that I kind of put in a monolith. Mm-hmm. And I think that's been interesting is to see all these books come out. And again, there's more coming, but we need more. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's so funny to hear you say that, Sarah. Like, you feel you're talking about, like, in the way you're comfortable, but then you also have the stress of, like, the rest of the reaction to, you know, the other characters in your book, you know? Mm-hmm. When it's Ramadan Curious George was first announced, I think Dabir was, who's been on the show before, was the first person to show it to me. Um, I knew I had to interview you, Hannah. That's the first time I heard about you. So you sent me the book, and I looked it over, and you know, we talked about it a little bit. I was very impressed with, like, the way the background characters were all of different types, Mm. you know? Like, Mm -hmm. there was women not wearing hijab, there's women wearing hijab, there's different skin tones. Mm -hmm. How did you think about that in terms of children books? I mean, it's clear that you you had a thought process for it, Hina. Yeah, it was really deliberate. You know, I requested that the art reflect that because I think people too often, you know, as we know, have an impression of of Muslims being foreign or other Mm. or ancient (laughs) in our ways. And... (laughs) Exotic. In all the picture books, I, I really wanted the characters to appear modern and and diverse and, you know, sort of subconsciously dispel that stereotype. So that someone, a child reading that book was like, oh, there's like skin people and there's people with and without the headscarf and there's all sorts of people here that are celebrating and are Muslim together. So that, yeah, that was very conscious. It's beautiful. And to me, that reflects what the Islam I know. Hmm. Um, and I, I feel like too often people don't realize that that's the way it is. Yeah, I mean, it's somebody who's going to write about like myself or memoir stuff, like, you know, as a Pakistani Muslim man, I want to think about other ways to just have the rest of those experiences that also make up the Muslim experience for mm-hmm. me and have made up my Muslim identity right. throughout. You know, that's like so key to me and something I always try to think about. Yeah, and some of them aren't exotic, right? That was one yeah. thing that used to annoy me about some of the South Asian literature I read that I mentioned earlier that I didn't see myself in because I felt it was almost over-exotifying everything. And, like, the feel of the sari fabric yeah, yeah. and the samosas. I'm like, why is samosa in every single book? Or mangoes. Yeah, mangoes in every yeah. Book. And even the interest that, you know, the Curious George book got when I spoke to reporters, like, a lot of them would be like, oh, you know, you included pizza, you know, in the, among the foods that, you know, you break into the fast with. I'm like, yeah, Muslims eat pizza, too. You know, like, we have kebab, and I included that also, and curry and pizza. <laughs> And I always ate the pizza during Ramadan. Right? I didn't like kebabs. I only it broke my fast. There's always pizza for the pizza. kids, right? And people need to realize that, you know, Muslims eat 
foods like anyone else and you know we wear clothes like anyone else and we have you know we sit in our sweatpants and watch basketball like anyone else like me (laughs) right exactly it's not always exotic I think that you just gotta you know tell the story that you want to tell and it'll reach the people that will probably need it more than you realize so on that note um, (laughs) I'm gonna gonna go home and write I'm gonna go home and write and finish my great um, and this is to all you out there too American Muslim novels all you yeah everyone who's tuning in you know just write the story you wanna tell and also for people who, you know, like, if you don't feel like enough in some way, at once you have to be thoughtful about the people that you're writing about so that you're not going into stereotype mode and you're not doing, like, mm-hmm. deliberately harmful stuff. But you also have to write things that resonate true to you yeah. and that are you and you don't have to necessarily fit into somebody else's narrative. Guys, I'm going to go and write down all those books, and I'm going <laughs> to go give them to all the children that I know, all the good. teens I know. Thank you so much for being here. It's been so good to talk to you guys, and I'm inspired to write again Yay. after Yay. a long time. Hina, where can people find you and your work and your writing and follow you on the internet? Um, they can find me on my website, which is just hennahan.com, H-E-N-A-K-H-A-N.com. Uh, I'm on Facebook, Hannah Author. Um, and also on Twitter and Instagram at Hennekon Books. And Sarah, where can people find you and your writing? Oh, I'm internet scared. Um, <laughs> but they they can find me uh, on Twitter at Sarah Farazan. I don't check it that much because it makes me super anxious. But if you're a young person, I will write back to you. And um, the books that I'm published on are on the Algonquin Young Readers website. Awesome. Um, you're like in the yellow pages, but you don't answer your phone. <laughs> <laughs> so before we read the fan mail, uh, we also have to give a shout out to the New York Times, which put us on the list of the best new podcasts of 2016. And most importantly, they mentioned my dad, which is, you know, my lifelong goal is to have every major media outlet write about my dad. Um, but yeah, we were in good company with like Code Switch and Two Dope Queens, a lot of really good podcasts. So that was really cool. Thanks to Amanda Hess for giving us um, a write up. And if you're new and listening to the show because of the New York Times, welcome. Uh, we're happy to have you. Um, Kat J sent us an email. She said, Oh my God, See Something Say Something has been bringing me a lot of joy in these dark times. But the teens episode made me make audible noises of delight at the gym and throughout my neighborhood. They are so good, and so are you. Thank you for all you all do. I recommend this podcast to everyone I know. You know, I love the teens, too. They were amazing. I wish I was as cool as them when I was younger. Um, And I think everyone should uh, follow Rumesa's writing. It's really, really good. At Coco Patootie tweeted at me, and she said, Oh my god, you're talking about gins and jai. See something, say something, where have you been all my life? And then she posted this really, really, really amazing gif of this guy on Indian TV doing uh, dancing with just his shoulders. It's like my favorite dance gif of all time. And uh, yeah, this basically summarizes how I feel about this podcast as well and how excited I am to share all this stuff with you. Stacy K tweeted, just finished the first episode of See Something, Say Something. Love from this Jewish girl in Ohio. What I really like what she said was, special thanks for the inadvertent vocab lesson. Added halal, haram, and juma now into my lexicon. Which is something we really thought about throughout, which is these are words that are, um, for Muslims, very uh, natural words. And it would part of our goal is to like sort of capture those conversations that 
um, we're having in our while we're drinking tea back home. And uh, the amazing thing about the internet is that Google exists. These are not difficult words, and you can Google them. And Stacy K, you're doing it right. You looked it up, and that's the way to do it. Um, usually, most of the things we say are easily Googleable. At Nomen UJ said, Today I learned that I'm not the only person who code switches my name, which was a reference to that first episode where I told that story about my name. It's like an awkward thing that people do on their own and they're thinking about it all the time, and we just need to talk about it. So it's been like uh, three or four weeks since um, the parents episode, um, and people are still talking about my dad. He is probably the number one topic of this podcast, which is uh, suitable because I am Rad Brown Dads. So um, I'm going to read you a few of the things people said about my dad still, like to this day, they're still doing it. They're talking. I've heard more about my dad than Reza Aslan. So sorry, Reza. Samir on Twitter said, your father's accent reminds me so strongly of my dad's and uncle's need to call home. Thanks for the interview. And then later on, he tweeted me again and said, um, actually, our dads were born less than 100 miles apart. Lylepur and Bindi Satpur. My parents met in med school and moved one month later to Houston. Very similar to my dad's story. So anyhow, shout outs to Lylepur and Bindi, man. The homies. So yeah, if you want to communicate with us, just uh, tweet me at radbrowndads or send us emails at say something at buzzfeed.com. Um, you can send questions for my dad and I'll ask him. Maybe we can get him on again. He can answer some of your questions. And if you're, there are things you want us to talk about or things you think we would be interested in, please send it our way. Um, we're reading all of it. Thank you again for all the kind words. This episode was produced by Eleanor Kagan and Megan Dietry. Additional production support from Thabir Akhtar, Julia Ferlin, Meg Kramer, Nina Patak, and Chiquita Pascal. Thanks to CDM Sound Studios. Our music is by the Caminas. Find them at caminas.bandcamp.com. Find me on Twitter at RadBrownDads, and my Tumblr is also called RadBrownDads. You can find my writing at buzzfeed.com slash Email us at say something at buzzfeed.com. And if you like the show, please rate it on iTunes. I'm Amadal Yakber. Thanks for listening. I, I have a friend named Wakas, and a substitute was like, is there a <laughs> whack-ass here? I was like, no. <laughs> He's very quiet and shy.